2012 as an exciting new year for many in our lives, but for many it is also a year full of uncertainties. Uncertainties in your personal life, but if you just read the newspapers and watch the television, you know that there are a lot of uncertainties that are going around this world. If you are into current events, you know that Iran is threatening to close the Straits of Hormuz. For those of you who don't care, you will care, because if they close it, your gas prices will double. There is a new dictator president in North Korea, and the pundits are wondering what he will do. In the weather front, Pagasa has forecasted that this year will be a year of great weather turbulences, greater than last year. I know some of us are skeptical at their weather forecasting, but uh, they are, we are encouraged because the other meteorologists around the world say the same thing. Can you imagine a year with greater weather disturbances than the one we've had the past year? If you read the Wall Street Journal and some of the op-ed articles in the Financial Times and whatnot, the pundits believe that Europe and Asia and America are teetering on the brink of economic instability and perhaps would drive the world's economy to a recession, perhaps even a worldwide depression. You may be enclosed in your life and not care about the world that changes around you, but this 2012 begins a year of great uncertainty. And the world is changing all around you. And yet, starting from last week, perhaps throughout this week, we've been greeting one another with a very happy new year. I ask you as you say those words, are those words a statement of fact or a statement of hope? Is it for you a wishing for a happy new year or for you a certainty that it will be a happy new year? For those of us who have placed our trust in the Lord of the universe and in His sovereign control of not only the present, but also the future, it is a statement of fact. It is happy in spite of its adversities and uncertainties because the God we worship is the God we know who is in control and a God who assures us and reveals through His Word what will happen not only in the future, but the fact that He is unchanging. These next few weeks, we continue our series in the book of Daniel. And we come to chapter 7 to 12 of the book of Daniel, which is the biblical prophetic portion of the book of Daniel. A lot of people stop reading at chapter 6 because they don't have a clue what chapter 7 to 12 talks about. We're going to study it these next few weeks. Chapter 7 to 12 is some of the most exciting parts of the book of Daniel dealing with biblical prophecy. What does the Bible have to say about the future? And we can still entitle the series Fearless. Why? Because the more we know about what God has in store for the future, in spite of the uncertainty of the world situation, we can stand fearless knowing that our God is in control and that our God has predicted for us the future. Now, biblical prophecy is not to scare us. It's not living with a hysteria that the world is going to end tomorrow. But biblical prophecy for the Christian are words of assurance. 
Words of reassurance that our God knows what He is doing. Words of reassurance to know that God is in control. Now we have to be careful in biblical prophecy not to go beyond what the Bible says. Or we may get into the danger of date setting. Meaning we look at the newspapers and think God is coming tomorrow. Now we believe in the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. Meaning that God can return at any time. He could come this afternoon. He could come before the end of the sermon. He could come next week. He can come the year after next. We believe in the imminent return of Christ. Meaning Christ can come at any time. Are we simply to pack up our bags and wait for His coming? No. The Bible tells us we are to be watchful, but we are also to be working. So that when He comes, we will be found faithful, serving our Lord faithfully. Be also aware of sensationalism, going beyond what the Bible has to say about the future, and ascertaining through your own perspective what you think the Bible has to say. We lock ourselves to the Word of God and we want to see what the Bible has to say. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 as we take a look at verses 1 to 28. Daniel chapter 7, we begin the prophetic portion of the book of Daniel. Now a lot of you or some of you may be new to biblical prophecy. You have not been given an overview of what God will be doing as He has revealed Himself in the Scripture. I'd like to, as a means of a background, explain very quickly God's plan for the ages. God's plan for the future. If you have grown up in our church, if you have attended the prophetic conferences, says of Dr. Paul Tan, or, or have been taught under him, or have sat in one of the Sunday school classes taught by myself on the book of the Revelation, then this chart will be very familiar to you. But uh, this is a chart that you need to know. These are the sequence of events that the Bible has revealed that we as a church believe will happen according to our interpretation of the scripture. Oh, the eschatological plan. Eschatology meaning last things. What God has planned for the future. We live in the church age. We live in the age after the cross. We live in the age of grace. Perhaps this year, Christ will come. The next eschatological event we are waiting for, the next event that we as Christians are waiting for, is the rapture of the church. When Christ will call up His church as the bride comes to the bridegroom to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. The rapture of the church is talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We don't know when that's going to happen. The Bible tells us the trumpet sound of God and in the twinkling of an eye we will change and we will be raptured the word rapture rapturo means to be taken away we will be lifted up and Christ is so excited to see us the Bible says he will come and meet us halfway and escort us into the glories of heaven we are removed from this earth because after the rapture comes the seven year period of the great tribulation in this seven-year period of the Great Tribulation, God's unprecedented judgment will be poured out in this world. And we as His people, as His children, as His church, as His bride, He will save us from His judgment. And that is part of His character that is consistent with who He is. In every 
time God pours out his judgment worldwide on the earth, he always saves the righteous. He saves the righteous before the judgment. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 is one of the key verses that, that tells us we will not go through the great tribulation. Now what will we do in heaven for these seven years when we are with the Lord? We will undergo judgment. That's called the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10. We will appear before the Bema in the Greek, the judgment seat of Christ. And there we must give an accounting of our life for the work done here on earth for the Lord. It is not a judgment on our salvation. It is a judgment of our works as done for the Lord. And so each one of us, including myself, will stand before the Lord and the Lord will say, What have you done? What have you done for me with the life and the time that I have given you? And there we will be judged for our rewards. While here on earth, there are seven years of great tribulation. Seven years where God will pour out His judgment upon the earth. We often wonder, why is it that God doesn't seem to deal with the evildoers? Why does it seem that God is so unfair? Well, the Bible tells us in Revelations chapter 6 to 18, Matthew chapter 24 to 25 in the Olivet Discourse, that God's judgment will reign upon the earth for seven years. How do we get to number seven? Seven years. We'll talk more about that when we study Daniel chapter 9. After the end of seven years, praise the Lord, hallelujah, Jesus Christ comes again. We call this the second advent of Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. And all evangelical Christians believe in a physical return of Jesus Christ to earth. He will step on the Mount of Olives as he has predicted. The second coming of Christ as has been prophesied in the Old and New Testament. Christ will come again. He will come and he will reign victorious for a thousand years. This is the messianic millennial reign of Christ. Daniel chapter 2, Revelations chapter 20. Jesus Christ will reign as king of this world. He will reverse the world, taking away the curse from Eden and bring this earth back to an Edenic condition. The millennial reign of Christ in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He will reign on David's throne. After this thousand years is the great white throne judgment. There are two judgments in eschatology. The great white throne judgment is the judgment for all unbelievers. This is not a judgment we as Christians go through. The Bible tells us hell and Hades give up its death. All those who are in hell right now will appear before the supreme court of heaven. And there they will appear before the judge. And there they will plead their case. You see, there's probably some people in hell wondering right now, Why am I here? I've been a really good person. I'm not a murderer. I paid my taxes every year. I treated my wife nicely. I raised good kids. I even gave to charity. What am I doing down here in hell? Well, they'll have their day in court. And they will plead their case before the Supreme Court of Heaven, of which there's one judge, Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the Great throne, White Throne Judgment. Great because unprecedented. All those who have not believed upon Jesus Christ will stand before Him. White because the standard of passing this judgment is absolute purity and holiness. Throne because God sits on His throne and He has the right to judge. And He will come and He will judge. And people will argue with Him and they will make a case for the good life that they have lived. 
Let me tell you, friends. The Bible tells us the books of their lives will be opened. Every thought, every word, every action, every motive, every lust, every temptation, every succumbing to sin in your life will be opened up and judged. And I've examined my life. And I know that there is no amount of good works in my life that will overcome the bad things that I have done. You can argue, argue with me to the end of this time. I tell you today, there is no amount of good works that you can do that will overcome all the bad that you have done. It takes a savior, someone who dies in your place to pay the penalty of sin. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And they will argue and they will realize that the great white throne, they do not measure up to God's standard of holiness. And the Bible says they will be cast to the lake of fire. For us as Christians, the Bible says after that, there is the new heavens and the new earth. Revelations chapter 21 and 22. Where we live with the Lord forever. And these two chapters in the Bible, Revelations 21 and 22, have served for me as some of the greatest encouragement during the lowest times of my life. In the difficulties of pastoral ministry. Uh, in the depression and in the discouragement that inevitably comes in all of our lives. Uh, I turn to these chapters and I reread them again. And I reread them because I know this is what God has promised for those who love Him. What God has promised for those who walk with Him. Uh, 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 not, uh, uh, not Shangri-La because it is but a dream but the reality of the new heaven and new earth and I hope that anytime you're discouraged you'll turn to the last two chapters of your Bible and you'll read about what God has in store for you 30, 40, 50, 60 years of pain and trouble cannot compare with eternity with the blessings that God gives us now I hope you will know this chart you will see it you will hear me ad nauseum mention it, it will be ingrained in you. Because I want you to be able to share this with someone else. If someone asks, what is God's plan for the future? You'll be able to, to show them very clearly, this is the plan. And as we study the book of Daniel from chapter 7 to chapter 12, we're going to fit in to these key moments of God's plan for the ages. Well, you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, he has a vision. And in this vision, he sees four great beasts, which represents four kingdoms. Look with me at Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and vision of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Note this in verse 3. And the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. Now, what do these four beasts represent? We can't simply ascribe a meaning to them. Well, the Bible interprets itself. Jump down to verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body. And the visions of my head troubled me, verse 16. And so I came near to one of those who stood by, an angel. And I asked him the truth of all this. 
So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Verse 17. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. So we know these four beasts represent four kingdoms. And it parallels in Daniel chapter 2, the vision of King Nebuchadnezzar, where he dreams of its statue made up of four elements, where he told us in Daniel chapter 2 that these four parts of the statue represents four kingdoms. The head of gold represents Babylon. Historically, that is true. The first great worldwide empire. The silver breastplate of arms represents the nation of the Medo-Persian Empire. Historically, following the Babylonian Empire. The brass uh, of the hips and the thighs represents the nation of Greece. The legs of iron mixed with clay later on represents the Roman Empire. These four parts of the statue of Daniel chapter 2 correlates exactly with the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7. And so from Daniel's historical perspective, these are four kingdoms to come. And let's take a look at these very quickly in detail. Verse 4. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. The first nation represents the nation of Babylon. And we see here that the Bible describes this first beast as a lion which had eagle's wings. Interestingly, the national emblem, the mascot of Babylon or ancient Babylon, uh, if you look historically, is that of a winged lion. Uh, a winged lion with a man's head. And if you look at uh, any Babylonian sculpture or, or archaeological effects, you see this image quite prominently displayed amongst the Babylonian architecture. The winged lion represents Babylon, and it is the first of the beasts. Verse 5, And suddenly another beast, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. This represents the kingdom of the Medo-Persian Empire. Note what the Bible says about the bear. One side of the bear is bigger, larger than the other side, which very much reflects historically the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire was made up of two people groups, the Persians and the Medes. And the Persians were always the stronger of the two ethnic groups. And that's why we often shortcut it and simply say the Persian Empire. One side of the, excuse me, one side of the bear was larger than the other. In the mouth of the bear were three ribs. And these three ribs represent the three powers or three nations that the Persians had to conquer so that it could become a world power. The Babylonian Empire, of course, the Egyptian Empire, and the Libyan Empire. And that's why the Persian Empire stretched all the way from North Africa, Libya, all the way into modern-day Iran. Now look at verse 6 with me. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. This beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This third beast represents Greece. The winged leopard represents the swiftness of the conquering of this beast. 
And historically, you remember Alexander the Great, the young general who took after his father, Philip of Macedon, when he was killed. And Alexander the Great, using the Greek phalanx, was able to conquer pretty much the known world in a short amount of time with the swiftness of his army going all the way to modern-day India till his troops got homesick and said, Alexander, it's time to go home. The Bible says here in verse 6 that this leopard-winged beast had four heads. Historically, we know that when Alexander was killed on his way back, four of his generals, four generals took over his kingdom and they divided his kingdom into four and they continued to carry out the Hellenistic Greek kingdom. In chapters 8 to chapter 11, we're going to talk more about this. Out of the four generals, two become very prominent in biblical prophecy. The king of the north, Seleucus, and king of the south, Ptolemy. Because out of the king of the north will come a king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a historical king. Then you say, Pastor, it's the beginning of the year, you've blown me away. These names I'm not going to remember, and I'm not going to expect you to remember. But I'm just laying the foundation for you as we build on this in the next few weeks. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a historical man, was a man who will prefigure the Antichrist. What he does historically, the Bible will use as a type or prefigurement of what the Antichrist will do at the Great Tribulation. Antiochus Epiphanes will sacrifice a pig in the temple of Jerusalem called the Abomination of Desolation. It's a historical event. It will desecrate the Jewish temple. In the future, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, will speak of the Antichrist, who will also cause the sacrifices to cease in Jerusalem. So you're going to be able to see a historical pronouncement that happened for us in the past of what's going to happen in the future. The fourth beast is the one we're going to spend time on. Verse 7 of chapter 7. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and mouth speaking pompous words. This fourth beast represents in the near future the empire of Rome. Empire of Rome. From the perspective of Daniel, living in the Babylonian times, Rome was nothing. Rome was nothing. But the Bible is predicting hundreds of years after the time of Daniel that in the near future, the Roman government, the Roman Empire, would be the fourth empire. But it was also forecasting, telescoping a farther future of what we call a revived Roman Empire. At the time of the Great Tribulation, the Bible says in the end times, there will arise a European superpower made up of ten nations who will be ruled over, the Bible says, by a little horn. This little horn is a so-called Antichrist. The Antichrist. Now, you've heard that before. We looked at Daniel chapter 2, and remember the feet of iron and clay. 
the ten toes that parallel the ten horns of Daniel chapter 7. The Bible tells us at the end time, in the great tribulation, there will arise a leader and he will unite Europe, a ten-nation confederacy, which will begin to make peace with Israel. Now, a lot of people ask about the Antichrist, and we'll talk more about him in our series. But pastor, does he live now? Does he walk amongst us? Who is he? My friends, let me tell you this. We will not know who he is. Second Thessalonians tells us we will not know him. The Bible says the man of perdition will not be revealed until the restrainer, the Holy Spirit, the church, is taken away. So the man of perdition, the Antichrist, will not reveal himself until the rapture of the church. Does he walk amongst us? And the answer is, I don't know. If Christ is to come today, if Christ takes us up tomorrow, it will usher in, very soon, the great tribulation. And for sure, the Antichrist is not a baby. And so he could be living in the present Will his name be Antichrist? I seriously doubt it. No parent in their right mind would name their kid Antichrist, unless they were very cruel. He would have a real name, but that is what the Bible refers him as. Look at verse 19. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. Verse 20. And the ten horns which were on its head, and the ten other, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth, that's a man, which spoke pompous words. This little horn, this man, this antichrist was speaking blasphemous words against God whose appearance was greater than its fellow. Note this in verse 21. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints. And note this, prevailing against him. God gave him the right, the privilege, the opportunity to make war against the world. And it seemed like he was winning. But God did not give him full control, verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saint of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast, verse 23, shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So the Bible interprets itself. And another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones. He shall subdue three of them. Verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High God. He will be a blasphemer against Christ. He shall persecute, note this, the saints of the Most High. And he shall intend to change times and law. He shall intend to rule the world. How long? Then the saints shall be given into his hand, note this, for a time and times and half a time. In biblical prophecy, a time is one year, times is two, and half a year gives us three and a half years. This little horn will be the Antichrist. He will come from the nations of Europe. You see, after the rapture, for sure, there will be lots of upheaval. When millions of Christians seem to disappear and go to heaven, the world is thrust into chaos. And everyone's looking for a leader. For Europe, they're going to unite under a man who we call the Antichrist. And he will come, but he will come with peace, 
Revelations chapter 6 tells us he comes as a white horse. And he is the Antichrist. He comes with peace. And he will make peace with Israel. And anyone who makes peace with Israel, Daniel chapter 9 verse 27, for sure will win the Nobel Peace Prize. And for a man who finally has achieved peace, seemingly, between Israel and its neighbors, who wins the Nobel Peace Prize, for sure a Nobel laureate would receive the praise of a country or countries. The Bible tells us the brief biography of the Antichrist is that when the rapture occurs, he will reveal himself and he will unite ten nations, ten European nations under a confederacy. Now, not everyone will be happy with him. Not what the Bible tells us. Three of these kingdoms will be uprooted. You look at Europe today. Europe today is one under the European Union, but they don't agree on everything. There are tensions there. And some of them may choose to leave the European Confederacy. The Bible says this will happen. For three and a half years, he will rule Europe. Then, in between, in the midst of the Great Tribulation, there's a war. Ezekiel chapter 38. Not everyone is happy with the Antichrist. And the Bible tells us the king of the north, Russia, and the king of the south, the Arab countries, will come and they will attack Israel. And because there's a peace treaty between Israel... And the European nations, they will come to its aid and there will be a world war in the middle of the Great Tribulation. And the Bible tells us the Antichrist will come victorious. And the Bible tells us in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 7, he will rule the world for three and a half years with the number 666. And we'll explain more about this as we look through this series. Here we have a man who is going to unite Europe and we see this in our present day. Forty years ago, fifty years ago, Europe was a mess. Europe was at war since their last major emperor, Charlemagne, under the Roman, Holy Roman Empire. Now you have Europe in, in, in disarray. You have World War I, World War II. And finally, after World War II, they get their act together and they say, You know what? We've got to start loving each other. We live in the same continent. And if we work together... We can be as powerful as the United States of America. And even if we have one single currency, we will be more powerful. And that's why you have the beginnings of the EEC and the EU. It's in your newspapers today. If you were a German, you lived in Germany, why in the world would you take your tax money and help someone in Italy or help someone in Greece who spent more than they had? Why? If you were living in France, why in the world would you, would you take out your hard-earned tax money and help someone in Portugal who bought a new car but couldn't afford it? Think about that. No wonder they're going through upheaval. But if you've read any of the statements between the German president and the French president, they said, the sake of Europe must be kept together. And they lost a lot of political goodwill. But they are striving, even amidst the debt crisis, to keep Europe together. And biblically, the Bible says Europe will stick together. It may go through some dysfunctions and, and some threshing out. But at the end, the Bible says there will be ten nations that arise. So your current newspaper is as current as what the scriptures have to say. The Bible tells us, and we'll talk more about this, that it is an economic draw that brings these nations together. And we'll talk more about that. Now, as you're reading this, you, it seems like the Antichrist is a free hand. 
Verse 21, he prevails against them. And we may ask the question, God, where are you in this? Where are you? Are you helping out at all? It seems like you've lost control. That's why God gave Daniel a second vision. Go with me back to verse 9. A second vision. It is the vision of the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. Look at verse 9 with me. I watched till thrones were put in place. Note this. And the Ancient of Days was seated. This is the picture of a courtroom. It's as if all of these beasts, these, these, these leaders are put in front of God. And here comes the Ancient of Days. The supreme court of heaven, which is one. And he comes and he sits on his throne. Here in verses 9 to verse 14, we're going to draw out seven characteristics of the ancient of days. Seven characteristics that hopefully in your life will bring encouragement to you. That in spite of a world that is uncertain, we know that the one who is in control still knows what he's doing. The first characteristic of the Ancient of Days, which is revealed to us, is right there in verse 9, in his very name. The Ancient of Dames, Days speak of his eternality. The first characteristic we see is the eternality of the Ancient of Days. The one who was and is and is to come. The very title of the Lord, the Ancient of Days, speak of God's eternality. He is the God of eternity past. He is the Alpha He's the God of eternity future. He's the Omega. He has been there since the beginning of time. He sees all. He knows all. You see, we have a problem in our generation today. Our God for us is a very small God. It's as if God simply appeared yesterday. Our God simply appeared two days ago. And so we often ask, God, where have you been? Where have you been? I've been looking for you. My friends... He has been there since the day you were born. He was there the day you got married to that spouse. Don't you think that God wasn't there at your marriage if you question your marriage? He was there the day your child was born. Don't you think that God wasn't there when He gave you this child? When, who is now 16 and you wonder, God, why did you give me this child? He was there. He was there since the day you were created. He was there before the world was created. That is His eternality. We just sang the song, He knows your name. The God who was and is and is to come knows about your life. And He cares about it. When you look at the character of God and just how amazing He is, and speak of his eternality. The fact that he would care for someone like you shows his great love for us. What is your view of God? Is it a low view of God where God is so small? Or is it a high view of God of just how amazing he is? The greater you believe about your God will directly affect how you walk your Christian life. What you believe about your God will change the very essence of how you live your life. Is your God a big God? Look at the second part of verse 9. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. This description speaks of a second characteristic, the holiness 
of the Ancient of Days. The holiness of the Ancient of Days. Daniel is trying to use the most white thing he could find in his present day. And that was snow. And he could only describe the garment as being white as snow. And the hair of his head as pure wool. Pure white wool. The holiness of God cannot have anything to do with the ugliness of sin. You know, when I was reading this and preparing for this sermon, I, I, I just had to stop. I said, God, you know, I come before you and I look at the thought life that I have and my thought life is ugly. I look at my heart and I say, my heart's motive is, is black. I, I come before you and I am a man of unclean lips. How can I stand before the God who is as white as snow? Holy is our God. And I begin to cower in fear. How can I stand before the God who is this holy? And God reminded me in the book of Hebrews. In all the tenderness of God when he says, come Come boldly, do not be afraid. Come boldly before the very throne room of grace where you will receive mercy in time of need. How can we come boldly before a God who is so holy? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who makes propitiation remission of our sin. We stand boldly before a holy God. We can even stand because of a God who sent His Son to make it possible. My friends, this is not a license to sin more and say, God, forgive me. The holiness of God should challenge us in our life to live a life that is holy for Him. The holiness of God should pierce our hearts and say, this is the life I need to live, a life free from sin. And that is the standard that God has set up. Look at the third part of verse 9. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. The third characteristic of a holy God is that we see the glory of the Ancient of Days. The glory of the Ancient of Days. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Why does this, does this describe the glory of God? If we had time and looked at the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1, verse 4 to 28... Perhaps someday we'll do a series in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4 to 28, it is a description of the holiness of God. And in the description of the prophet Ezekiel, he sees the glory of God and he describes it as a fiery flame, wheels burning with fire. The glory, the Shekinah, the very presence, the doxa glory of God. When we see the glory of God, what is our response? Well, we just passed through Christmas. You remember Luke chapter 2? When he appeared to the shepherds, the glory of the Lord shone all around them. And the Bible says to us, and they were so afraid. In every instance, when God reveals his glory, do you know what happens? You know what people do? They cannot bear to look upon the glory of God and they lie prostrate before God. When the glory of God revealed Himself in a bush, 
Moses could not walk on that ground until he took off his shoes. For the ground he stood on was holy ground and he laid before the Lord. Except something is wrong with our generation. When we see the glory of God every day in our lives. And you know what we do? We put our hands crosswise and we say, God, I'm not impressed. Show me more. I'm not impressed with your glory. It's because we have a very small view of who God is. And therefore, His glory is very small. A biblical, correct response as we... Meditate and think about the, the, the amazing glory of God is that we humble ourselves and we worship Him. How big is our God? In our generation, we don't see God in the everyday. We don't see God in the mundane, but my friends, He's working and He reveals His glory every day to us. It's because we do not see His glory. We take it for granted. We belittle His glory. Therefore, we do not see God. But he shows himself to Daniel. Look at verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was sealed and the books were open. The fourth characteristic is the awesomeness of the ancient of days. The awesomeness. We have a tendency to overuse the word awesome. We listen to a music or a song, we say, that was awesome. We watch a movie and we say, wow, that was awesome. Someone scores a goal and we say, wow, you're awesome. My friends, we misuse that word. True awesomeness comes when billions and billions of angels come before you and they worship you. When billions and billions of angels keep silent when you open your mouth. When billions and billions of angels do your bidding with one word command. That is awesomeness. And the characteristic of God that we have forgotten is just how awesome He is. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. His awesomeness is declared as we look through this world. As we enjoy the beach, as we look at the stars at night, His awesomeness is revealed. You know, I, I was thinking about this and I think, man, we so take for granted His awesomeness. And just how amazing he is. Those angels up in heaven must look down and they must be in utter shock at how we live our life. You treat God like that? You disregard God? You don't pay attention to him? You don't spend time with him? Unbelievable. We stand before Him day and night crying out, Holy, holy, holy. We can't even look upon Him that the seraphims cover their angel wings, their eyes. And you treat God like that? You must not think Him very awesome. Your God must be very small to you. And they must be in utter disbelief of how we treat God. I hope, my friends... That our view of God is raised up 
as we read the Word of God. Our God is not some sort of pet toy that we call when we want. He's the God of the universe where billions of angels come and worship Him. That is an awesome God. Look at verse 11 and 12. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominions taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. The fifth characteristic we see is the power of the Ancient of Days. The power of the Ancient of Days. With one word, he defeats these beasts. I like how... He puts it in verse 11. The little horn, the Antichrist, speaks pompous words. He was slain. That's it. Simple as that. You speak pompous words against God, God kills you. That's the power of God. With one snap of his finger, you drop dead. That is his power. And he can take down governments and he can take down dominions as he so chooses. The power of the Ancient of Days... And yet, you know, my friends, with all of his amazing power, the Bible says we call him in the most intimate terms, Abba, Father. Every time we pray, we say, Dear Heavenly Father. Can you imagine that sort of intimacy? And that's why when we go into 2012, there is no fear. Because we call him in the most intimate term, our father. He calls us in the most intimate terms, our children. My child. What do we have to be afraid of? When the power of all of heaven is at our disposal when we pray. And we say, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. And he answers back, what is it, my child, you need? When we think about the power of God, it must amaze the angels and all of heaven why we do not pray more. It must utterly shock them that we do not tap to the greatest source of power to say, dear God, I need your help. And he answers back, what is it, my child? That's why 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he that is in us than he that is of the world. No one can stand up to what the Lord has planned for us. The power of the Ancient of Days. Look at verse 13 to 14. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came, Jesus came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. Note this, and His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. The Bible says that God the Father will take all the powers of these kingdoms and give it to His Son, God the Son, in the Messianic kingdom. And we see the sixth characteristic when he has the ability to do this. The sixth characteristic we see of the Ancient of Days is his sovereignty. The sovereignty of the Ancient of Days. His sovereignty speaks of his right to rule. 
His sovereignty speaks of the fact that He can do what He so pleases. And it pleases Him that He should take all of the rights and the privileges and the power of this kingdom and transfer it to His Son. What a beautiful picture. And He says, Son, your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. You have the right to rule. And the Bible says when He comes again, He will institute the messianic kingdom the promised kingdom. This is in keeping with the Father's promise to the Son in Psalm chapter 2, which will be fulfilled when He comes again. And His kingdom will last forever and ever. His reign will be established on earth for a thousand years, as prophesied even in the book of Daniel chapter 2. The stone that was cut, not by human hand, would come and knock down the statue and his reign will be established on earth, Revelations chapter 20. And at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us he will rule with God in his eternal kingdom. That's an amazing thing. The fact that God at his whim, but at his sovereign wisdom, can take down empires and give it to those he wants is an assurance to us. Because my friends, we are part of that messianic kingdom. We are part of a kingdom that will never fall. We don't need to take sides. Sometimes we, uh, we play the political game. You can imagine all the political appointees in government. Whenever they change presidents, they better switch their loyalties because they don't know if they're going to have a job with the next president. My friends, you leap loyal to the Lord because His kingdom never falls and will never fail. It will last forever and ever. And He will reign King of kings and Lord of lords. The final characteristic is found in verse 26 to 28. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion, note this, and the greatness of the kingdom under the most heaven, underline this, shall be given to the people, the saints of the most high. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The Bible says that the greatness of the kingdom shall be given to his children. That's us. You see, the seventh characteristic of the Ancient of Days is we see the promises of the Ancient of Days or the rewards of the Ancient of Days. He promises to us that we will co-heir with him. We will co-rule with him, the book of Colossians tells us. And for me, my friends, that is such great hope in a world such as this. You may feel in your life that you drew the short end of the stick. God, how come I'm poor while everyone else was born rich? And how come I prayed for you to make me rich, but you don't seem to do so? My friends, He may not grant your wishes in this lifetime, but He has promised it to us in the next. Why worry about the money earned today when the Bible says you will walk on streets of gold? Sometimes in our generation today, we say, God, why did you give me a clunker of a car when I see people driving around in Mercedes-Benz and BMW? And so we envy and we covet and we say, come on, God, be fair. At least give me a car that's working. My friends, remember the promises of the ancient of days. He said, you guys are fighting over cars. 
In heaven, there are no cars. You just fly. That's better than any car you can have. You say, God, boy, you gave me a real small house. I've got to fit five in one room. Well, someone who only has two in their household lives in an eight-bedroom house. How does that work out, God? How is that fair in my life? God says, my friends, my children, why do you worry so? Remember the book of Matthew? I've gone to prepare a place for you. And there are mansions in glory. You don't need to burn paper houses so that you'll have a house to live in. I'm already preparing one for you. And it's going to be big. You don't believe me? Read Revelations 21 and 22. The exact measurements of one of the cities that we will live in. There is ample room for us. See, you may feel that you drew the short end of the stick. That God has been so unfair with you. That, that somehow your business is not what others are. But here's the thing. What is 10 years of suffering compared to a lifetime with Him? What is 20, 30, 40, 50, even 80 years compared to a lifetime of experiencing the glories of heaven? That's why I've said it before and I say it again now. Why is it that we fight for the rubbish and scraps of this earth when we have been promised and given the glories of heaven? Paul calls it dung. Paul says this is rubbish, my achievements, my everything. Why do we as people fight over the rubbish of this earth, this temporal life, showing that we're better than others because we have more zeros in our bank account or, or, or have, have more letters after our name in education or, or, or have, have more employees under us. Why do we fight for the scraps of this earth when we have been promised the glories of heaven? Those who fight for the scraps of this earth, guess what they're going to get in heaven? Fortunately, not very much. The Bible says, the greatness of the kingdom shall be given to the people and the saints of the Most High. And so you can persevere in spite of what people do to you, in spite of, perhaps you say, the bad luck that occurs to me this year. You can persevere because you've already been promised the glories of heaven. As we close this chapter as you think about the Ancient of Days, our Heavenly Father, as you meditate upon His characteristics of His eternality, His holiness, His glory, His awesomeness, His power, His sovereignty, His promise, what is your life's reaction? How is your life changed? Are you in awe of Him? Or are those simply for you head knowledge items? And you leave these doors thinking, well, nice words, pastor, but my God hasn't done much for me. How will you take the living word of God and apply it to your life? To whom will you cling in this uncertain world to? Later on, we're going to sing as we close a hymn of response, Abide With Me. I pick this song because it is a prayer. It's a request that God will abide with us. You know, in 2012, we ask a lot of people to be with us. When it's dark, we ask, hey, someone sleep with me so I won't be afraid of the dark. 
We've asked a lot of people to be with us, except we have forgotten to ask God. My prayer for you is as you see the greatness of the characteristics of who God is, you will be able to prayerfully say, Lord, abide with me, journey with me, be with me, hold my hands, pick me up when I can't walk any further. Walk alongside with me this 2012 because I need you. You are a great God and I am nothing. Will your prayer this morning be that the Ancient of Days will continue to abide with you? Have you welcomed Him? Have you asked Him to walk with you this year? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to be again lifted up to see beyond the temporal discouragement of this life to see what you have promised for us in the future. To know that a God who is so sovereign and in control and a God who is so amazing and a God who is so powerful, full of glory is a God we call Abba, Father. Forgive me, Lord, if I do not call upon you more often. May it be this year that we can pray and say with heart's conviction, abide with me, be with me, walk with me, even amidst the uncertainties. I ask the Lord of the universe, the Ancient of Days, to come and watch over me. And therefore, I can truly say, as a statement of fact, Happy New Year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.